Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss the latest updates from across the battlefront as Ukrainian troops advance on Liman. We analyse the ruptured pipelines in the Baltic Sea and look at the news from Russia as the state attempts to mobilise thousands for combat. We are facing a very serious crisis in energy caused by Putin's war in Ukraine. Nobody is going to break us. We are strong. We are Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 28th of September, day 217. Today, I'm joined by Associate Editor Dominic Nichols, our Russia correspondent, Natalia Vasilyeva, and our Brussels correspondent, Joe Barnes. I started by asking Dom for the latest updates from Ukraine. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. It's been very busy in the northeast front. So the town of Liman is is the focus for much of the battlefield action in the last 24 hours. So this is in uh, Russian-held territory at the moment although it is increasingly surrounded there's it's quite a quite a large town 20,000 people before the war um and it's quite it's a it's a route into the donbass it's been described as the large the last major defensive line before the luhansk oblast so not only does it sort of allow a route into this lysychansk severodonetsk area but also once you start, once Ukraine starts carving into the Luhansk Oblast, it completely undermines, if any more undermining was required, but completely undermines Russia's claim about all these ridiculous referendums they've, they've just held and, and how they control the territory and, and all that sort of stuff. So it is a it is quite a large feature in its own own right. And the, the geography around there, around there suggests that, um, that the next line to the east that Russia would have to fall back on would be would be some you know, 15 to 20 k's back. So they're, they're holding on there. However, they are almost entirely surrounded. There is one main road out to the northeast that is still in Russian, under Russian control, although that is in artillery range from, from Ukraine. But that seems to be it. And it's expected that, that Le Mans will fall in the next 24 to 48 hours, fall slash, you know, well, there's no slash about it, be retaken by the Ukrainian Ukrainian forces. And that will then force Russia, as I say, to to make another, well, they'd have to take a bold step backwards. They, they, there can be no no more sort of nibbling around the edges of this. They need to move back to a um, uh, to a more a more easily defended line, a more easily geographically held line. Um, and the town of Savatove seems to be where they should be they should be building any kind of defence in depth around. So we will obviously watch that with with uh, with great with great interest. Now. Elsewhere, to, to the north, uh, Kharkiv, Ukraine's second city, it was hit by missile strikes overnight. The, the, an electricity substation was, was hit. Power was lost to 18,000 people. Uh, no casualties reported yet. Uh, and it was suggested by uh, Ukrainian authorities in the, in the city that, that Russia would use S-300 anti-air missiles. Now, as we said before, repurposing weapons, it still works. I mean, they still go bang when they when they get to where they want to go. But repurposing weapons from, from in this case, anti-air, so ground-to-air launched missiles, using them in a ground-to-ground way is, no, is not ideal, right? They're not designed for that. The targeting system is not designed for that. They're, the whole way their the flight profile is, they are designed to fly, is not, is not designed to be accurate. We've seen 
over the last months, Russia doesn't really care about about whether or not it's accurate. But I think it's very interesting, as we've said before, not only is it if they are repurposing munitions, that, that shows that they have almost run out, almost certainly run out of other or, or precision guided munitions or the correct weapon to use. But I think in this case, if this was an S-300 that was used in the, in the ground-to-ground role that was targeted seemingly not at, again, not at any military target, but hit, hit, a, hit an electricity substation and knocked out power to thousands of people. Uh, OK, fine. Is that the best use for your, for your very capable anti-air defence system? So it speaks of a complete lack of control from Russia, that they're not prioritising, they're, they're not using their weapons correctly. I mean, what 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 was the point of denying 18,000 people power if it means that you then can't potentially target Ukrainian air, air assets, jets and, and helicopters later on in the war? It just seems a ridiculous use of an S-300, if that's, if that's correct. Um, elsewhere, the uh, we'll talk about the pipeline in a minute, so I'll just, uh, I'll just take a little breather there. Well, thank you very much for that, Dom. I've got a few questions, but yes, let's move on. Um, Dom, would you introduce this next section? So we, you mentioned the pipeline. This is uh, an act of, we think, suspected sabotage in the Baltic Sea. It seems fairly extraordinary. Could you just give us a rundown of what we think has happened? Yeah, so the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines. So two pipelines, Nord Stream 1 that came online in 2011, Nord Stream 2 came online last year, yet to, yet to actually... Uh, start supplying gas this is from russia into well directly into germany and then elsewhere in europe but primarily germany so the Nord Stream one and two flows through the the baltic sea they, they're not not directly parallel to each other these two pipelines but they never never waver too far away from each other on monday there were three three incidents uh, alleged to be or assessed to be explosions uh, Christine Lebrecht, the German defence minister, saying presumed sabotage. That 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 phrase, sabotage, has been echoed by NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg and other other national leaders. But we we don't know yet until we've had a had a proper look. We don't know. However, there were three three seismic events uh, registered by by various countries around um, around Europe, and it's resulted in an enormous amount of gas, mainly methane gas, being released. Out of the out of the pipe, and you can see it. There's there's very dramatic imagery on our website and other other media organisations carrying the same imagery of this uh, of this gas arriving at the surface. Now, that that's what's happened. Uh, two of these two of the two of the explosions happened in uh, Sweden's exclusive economic zone. One of them happened in Denmark's. Um, so we don't know quite what happened. There's a lot of speculation. I can I can uh, go through that in a second about what what may have caused this. Um, the reasons why. Again, we are we are assessing. We're not entirely sure because we don't know who who did it. But if it if we if it was seen as as Russia, um, assessed as Russia trying to turn literally turn the taps off to to the West, kind of energizing the uh, weaponizing the um, the energy side of of this, then why 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 might they why might they do that? Why can't they just turn the taps off? Well, if they turn the taps off, they would be liable for all sorts of contractual liabilities that they've already signed up to, and and a lot easier to say, oh no, there's been a terrible a terrible incident here, nothing to do with us, and uh, and then not be not be liable and, and smudge the issue. But we'll come back to the possible whys and wherefores and how they might have done it just in a moment. Thanks, Dom. Um, Joe Barnes, our Brussels correspondent, could you run us through the European reaction to what's been happening in the Baltic Sea? Sure, sure, sure. Hi, folks. Um, so um, I think the kind of immediate reaction that comes uh, and has literally been out in the last hour or so is the sources in Germany are suggesting that some strands of the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, which is kind of the main pipeline that carries gas from Russia into Europe under the Baltic Sea, will never be usable again. Uh, so they'll be out of action forever. So that's kind of prompted uh, thinking of how the European Union, uh, NATO, and kind of other European countries, because the UK are included in that, Norway are included in that, uh, should deal with it. So starting with the European Union's response, uh, theirs is pretty clear. They basically said, let's push harder and faster towards diversifying the supply of uh, gas into the bloc and moving further further away from Russian fossil fuels for their energy needs. Uh, So in statements, the EU has kind of vowed a, a robust and united response, but I got I got warned this morning by one of uh, Joseph Burrell, who's the top kind of foreign diplomat in the bloc, so the EU's kind of de facto foreign minister. One of his aides kind of said, look, that's not going to be sanctions because we basically there's a bit of a, 
a need to calm down. But what the EU has described the kind of the incident as is a deliberate act. They didn't go as far as sabotage, but they they've kind of said whatever has happened is it was on purpose. It was meant to happen. NATO has assessed the damage as sabotage. But um, then one kind of idea that brings up is, is it enough to uh, trigger the uh, NATO's Article 5 mechanisms? Article 5 is NATO's kind of collective defence kind of policy. So if one member is attacked or one ally is attacked, it it triggers basically a united response uh, from everyone. And say the last time it was triggered was after 9-11 when um, two planes hit the Twin Towers and another plane hit the Pentagon and another uh, airliner jet was shot down, I think, in Pennsylvania. Um, So that has been quiet. Talk around Article 5 is not quite there yet. Um, So following kind of the instant, uh, Jens Stoltenberg, NATO Secretary General, he uh, met Danish Defence Minister Morten Odskov this morning. um, And that led to them basically highlighting the seriousness of the issue um, kind of underlining it being a deliberate act, sabotage, but kind of didn't go much further than that. It didn't spell out any potential consequences. Um, but what uh, Bodskov, the Danish defence minister, did warn was that Russia still has a significant military presence in the Baltic Sea, which is where the pipeline runs under. And he said, despite the war in Ukraine, he expects continued Russian saber-rattling in the Baltic. So I think what you might see um, as some sort of response is a NATO naval operation dispatched to that to that region, maybe some kind of war games held, some training exercises, basically just to reassure kind of NATO allies in the area that NATO has it under control. And um, But then there's actually the, the big question amongst kind of NATO allies, officials, diplomats, uh, the EU, other various Western officials, is is what on earth happened? So uh, we can obviously, as Dom said, we're going to that later on. But Denmark has come out and said, look, it's going to take one or two weeks for the leaks to kind of die down sufficiently enough so we can start a proper investigation into what happened. And so I was in a briefing with a Western official this morning who basically echoed that. They said the West must take this like really, really seriously. There's obviously a great suspicion, and probably more than a suspicion, that it is a deliberate act, it's sabotage. But before kind of responding, before going tonto or whatever, will come out of this, we actually have to investigate it properly. Um, and then what it has also led to is Denmark and Norway have announced that they ramped up security around critical infrastructure, rigs, and other various buildings and constructions linked to their oil and gas industries. So Norway has since uh, February 24th now become kind of the biggest exporter of natural gas into Europe. Uh, so that's a significant step. So they're going to they're going to obviously be slightly cautious because they, if, if it is Russia, which is suspected and most people believe, has caused this attack uh, or this is an attack, a bit of sabotage, that there's no reason why their infrastructure could also be targeted. Um, then I think we have to then look at the wider kind of implications for this so europe is in a pretty grave situation as we know um it's had to pretty rapidly diversify its energy supply from russia and it it has done fairly brilliantly but what they have an issue with uh much like in the uk and just wider energy prices um is european energy and electricity sorry is pegged to the price wholesale price of natural gas so as we know, gas prices have gone absolutely through the roof because of what the EU calls Vladimir Putin's kind of energy blackmail. Um, and that has led to Slovakia's uh, prime minister warning that his country's economy is on the brink of collapse because of soaring energy prices. Um, today, uh, 15 EU nations had s- submitted a joint letter to the European Commission basically calling for a price cap on wholesale gas that's uh, not just Russian gas, that's all gas to help bring down the prices. So there's going to be wider implications to this because, again, after after the leak happened, prices again jumped back up um, in terms of gas. So that means our electricity bills will go up. And so people are pretty nervous, but I don't think they're going to kind of jump to massive conclusions just yet. And I'll stop there. 
Well, thanks very much for that, Joe. Uh, Natalia Vasilieva, our Russia correspondent, can I just bring you in quickly? What's, has there been any reporting of this in, in the Russian press? And uh, how can you gauge the, the Russian reaction to this? Sure. Uh, that's actually quite interesting. It's a good question because for years, Nord Stream has been a flagship um, pipeline project for Russia. Putin has touted it as one of his um, foreign policy and economic achievements, showing that, look at us, we've built this infrastructure, which essentially ties Europe to Russia's gas supply, and like, it's good for everyone, it's good for Europe, it's good for Russia. Um, people old enough might remember then-President Dmitry Medvedev and German Chancellor Angela Merkel, and lots and lots of other leaders of EU countries opening... Um, the uh, the Nord Stream pipeline in this lavish ceremony together as a new chapter that signifying even closer ties between Russia and Europe. So obviously that's that's quite a landmark event, the, the explosion that happened, and the circumstances are quite extraordinary. And um, it's that's why it's it was been it's been really interesting to see how state media has been covering it. And the answer is it hasn't really been covering it at all. Uh, the Kremlin spokesman has been asked about this explosion. He tried to be very cautious. He says that it might be sabotage, but he wouldn't speculate. Other than that, if you, if you look at state TV or um, some of Russia's popular tabloids and uh, state-controlled or um, pro-Kremlin newspapers, there really was nothing. It's just that it, like yesterday was literally um, very short, concise stories about what happening, but like, there's not much discussion of the implication, like what it means also for the standing Russia's um, energy supplier for Europe. Thanks, Natalia. Um, well, let's get into what we think might have happened. Um, Dom, you said you'd be able to sort of share some of your conspiracy theories about how, how this might have uh, occurred. And you've written a big, long thing for the paper as well, uh, which is online. I'd recommend everybody go read it. Uh, Dom, can you talk us through some of, some of your ideas? Yeah, sure. And the first thing I'll say is that, that when I told you there were conspiracy theories, I mean, that, that was a bit tongue-in-cheek. I mean, they are not. This is informed informed journalism. Um Sorry, based, yes, you, you you can't see me winking, but but yes, we 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 get that. Yeah, based on based on uh, chats with many many people, and I, I noticed we have at least one Royal Royal Navy engineer in the space. So, I uh, please DM me when I get um, if I get some some issues wrong here. But okay, so let's so what do we what do we think has happened? So there's two pipelines, uh, two events on one pipeline, one one on the other, almost simultaneously. Uh, Subsea acoustic sensors pick, picked up picked up events, so they've they've gone they've gone pop somehow. Uh, there could be any number of reasons for this. It could be the um, what do you call the bug, the stuff on the inside that goes down cleaning the pipes that could have suddenly suddenly ruptured. But that's that's not correct because you wouldn't have two bugs in one in one pipeline that suddenly go off. The simultaneity of it is the is the key here. Um, it could be. It was suggested it might have been a dragged anchor, but no, it wouldn't have been a dragged anchor from a from a surface vessel that's that's let's say dragging dragging its anchor because well you know it's gone it's gone bang in three places at the same time. It's a very busy shipping channel, so you're not going to have some a vessel at anchor unless it's gone miles, and we know that 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 didn't happen. Um, a fishing net, lost fishing net that snagged on these things. No, so I mean there are there are other other reasons, other things we need to look at sensibly look at and then and then discount so it's it's it has been like i say many states uh, states people have been saying it, it's positing sabotage so we got let's have, let's have a look at that so what could make something go bang subsurface um, nuclear submarines we know russia is very active in the baltic other other nations are as well it's actually quite shallow you know you're talking 70 80 90 meters ish the sea there so quite quite difficult to hide a nuclear submarine, um, quite difficult to operate with the the mix of fresh water and salt water. It can play havoc with your buoyancy, so it's quite quite difficult to operate this. And then, if it was a if it was a submarine, what's it going to do? Well, it might have a, a remotely operated vehicle, you know, a drone, underwater uh, UUV, underwater uh, uninhabited vehicle, and these things could go down and let's say either crash into the pipes or or plant some sort of device. I mean possible very tricky you look, look at the range of these things that they're, they're not they're not able to go that far so that so the the mothership be it a submarine or a surface vessel would have to be fairly close by and um is it is it likely that these things what's what's the risk if these things are carrying an explosive could they go down and, and get absolutely the right place at the right time 
possibly not. Um, divers, yeah, dive, divers could operate at that depth. It's right on the edge, I'm told, right on the edge of what um, of what the what the human beings could could sensibly operate at. They could carry an explosive device and put it on there. But again, you've got to have some sort of mothership, either a, either a submarine or a surface vessel that un- undoubtedly would be seen. Or we can all go back and have a look at the ship tracking tracking websites and so on and so forth. So unlikely to be divers. Um, and so what else what else might it might it be i mean we, the russian submarine force uh was rated very highly rated throughout the cold war as being as, as being very capable very good very capable and that is one area of the of the russian military forces that has been invested in over the last 20 odd years so so they were they were good in the cold war took a bit of a dip through the 90s but um probably had some residual knowledge there and have been invested in since so so they 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 reckon to be quite a good quite a good part of the service and this is one of the reasons why Britain's defense secretary Ben Wallace announced uh, a couple of weeks ago when I was with him up in up in uh, Barrow looking at looking at the new submarines um and he's announced that he wants a review wants the Royal Navy or the, the Ministry of Defense led by the Royal Navy obviously to do a review of the surface to subsurface mix looking looking to the future is britain in the right place should we be focusing more subsurface etc etc um so that review is is um well is about if it's not started already it's about to start but yeah russia are very good they've got some very specialized and adapted uh, submarines for uh, doing things on the seabed looking at internet cables tapping internet cables so if they're able to do that why why not tap a tap a pipe as well um and these pipes they're not armored they are they're metal. They're a few centimeters thick, but they're not. They're not designed to put up with uh, explosions. They're, I mean, they're designed to put up with um, you know very extreme physical stresses of of being under under the water. But I mean, they're they're not they're not armored in any way. So you wouldn't need a huge explosive charge to make a hole in them. You also wouldn't need that explosive charge to be directly on top of or or immediately next to the pipe. The because of the, the pressure of water, the way that a blast works at depth for the same amount of charge you'll get you'll get a bigger effect under the water than you will have on on land on the beach so you don't need a a massive weapon and it doesn't need to be directly on top of the pipe to to cause a to cause some damage like this so let's have a look at modern modern sea mines i mean they come in all sorts of shapes sizes and flavors but but some sea mines are designed to be dropped in an area of um, strategic value and then sit there for you know, weeks, months, possibly years at a time, listening for the acoustic signature of pre-programmed targets. So you might have a mine that sits on the seabed somewhere, listening, um, knowing knowing what the sound of a Type 45, British Royal Navy Type 45 destroyer might sound like. So you know, a propeller with however many blades on it, you know, going going over going overhead. It might know that that's what a Type 45 is. It might know what. Um, a Queen Elizabeth class aircraft carrier sounds like twin 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 props, you know, seven whatever it is, six, seven, eight blades on each prop. Um, so it would know the sound of that. And it might be pre-programmed, right? Ignore the destroyers, ignore the frigates, ignore the mine hunters, go for the aircraft carrier. So possibly these devices uh, on these pipelines, they may have been laid weeks ago, months ago, while we were looking elsewhere. We might have been looking at the uh, atrocities being uncovered in Butcher. The world might have had its attention um diverted looking at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant might we might have been it might have been during the winter olympics in in china we might all have been looking elsewhere when these things were were plopped down there uh by submarine possibly as as you suggested bit tricky to operate subs there um unseen uh, maybe a um, st petersburg registered fishing vessel yeah, again again maybe but uh, that might might look a bit suspicious it might have been a passing oligarch's yacht that popped these things over, over the side and they float down 70-odd metres to land near the near the pipelines. And then they might have been listening for either the, the correct acoustic signature of a, of a quote-unquote friendly vessel going over the top but sufficiently far away that not to be affected by the blast, or maybe the, the, the signal transmitted by a device chucked out by an aircraft a couple of days ago yeah you know, i don't what i'm saying is that these things might have been just waiting for the for the correct stimulus to then to then um detonate so i mean i this this is speculation however informed by various people i've spoken to um 
in the last uh, the last day or so, and I, I'm I'm fairly confident that many navies are are aware of the threat to undersea cables and undersea infrastructure, and therefore regularly go and check when they've seen any Russian naval activity, or just routinely go and check, and make sure there's been no no new barnacles attached to anything of of value. Um, and I wonder, and I speculate in the in the piece. This is this is from the minor margin. This is my speculation. I wonder if if this was an attack, and you know, if we're saying Russia's likely behind some kind of attack, if, if this is what happened, whether or not they picked this location because it splits between the Swedish and, and Danish uh, economic zones, but that, that's sort of just working on that on the fault line there. And who's checking the pipelines? If if these pipes are there and are part of your critical national infrastructure they should be checked they should have uh, devices vessels going up and down making sure there aren't there is not there is not anything attached so i wonder if if actually that has not been happening or if it um or if it missed something or or quite whether there's been a bit of oversight here over something's been overlooked here so a lot of a lot of that is is yeah, I'm not sure. Like I say, informed speculation. I'd appeal to anybody listening, Royal Navy engineers amongst us in this space, uh, to get in touch and tell me if I'm if I'm massively off the mark. Um, but it, it does look as if it's it's sabotaged. It looks as if it's going to be quite some weeks before the gas that's in the pipe. And for the technical reasons, I don't fully grasp. It's not like you can just sort of turn the turn the gas off. There's a there's a a volume of gas in the pipe that has to come out. And so we've got to wait for that to happen before it's then deemed safe to go down and, and have a look and see what it was. But um, any suggestion that it was an explosive device will be will be looked at very, very carefully in, in terms of attribution. This is almost like you know, an underwater cyber attack, if you like. Attribution is going to be very, very difficult and absolutely key to trying to hold somebody to account here. But um, that that's kind of where my, where my investigations uh, took me in the last 24 hours. Thanks, Dom. Joe, I know you wanted to come in very briefly before we'll move to your and Natalia's reporting on Russian mobilisation. Uh, yeah, so um, one thing I did notice quite a lot, because I'm a keen user of Twitter, probably far too much, um, that a tweet by ABC, an American news channel, featuring a clip of a Joe Biden press conference from February the 7th. This is kind of at the beginning of the month. It's well before, well, say, two, two, three weeks before the war in Ukraine began was has started doing the rounds again. I saw it noticed on a, it was mentioned on a few kind of pro-Russian kind of Telegram social media channels, and it was just quite interesting. This is uh, what some of the Russian kind of troll farms have seized upon. And uh, in this clip, Joe Biden says, "If Russia invades, then there will no longer be a Nord Stream two. We will bring it to an end." So the a reporter then comes back to. President Biden says, but how will you do that exactly since the project is in Germany's control? And Biden just went, replied, I promise you we will be able to do that. So it's that's uh, the angle the, the Russians might be jumping on to kind of suggest that it was actually President Biden had sanctioned some sort of kind of catastrophic attack on the Nord Stream pipelines to bring them to a close, which I just thought was a kind of amusing op- observation. I'm sure the the fellas, uh, the good people at NAFO will be kind of jumping on, sending pictures of their Shiba dogs to kind of make fun of the kind of the Russian trolls pumping out this bizarre propaganda. You've been writing a little bit about um, some of the uh, Russian mobilization, some of the videos we've been seeing, uh, some of the details we've got from people being called up to, to the Russian army. What, um, what, what, what stands out for you um, in the stories that you've been covering in the past few days? So I think in the days, it's probably is it about a week now since Vladimir Putin announced his kind of partial mobilisation, um, the things we've covered, we've covered extensively Russians fleeing the country. And it's believed that around 250,000 uh, Russian Russians have left in the wake of this announcement by President Putin. Um, so nearly 100,000 of them have got travelled to Kazakhstan, but they've gone to neighbouring Georgia. They've attempted to cross into the EU, but many of those border crossings are being closed. Um, one of the other things that we've seen a lot of is kind of, and this this was also highlighted in the briefing that we had with a Western official earlier, was these kind of the, the amount of demonstrations that have, have say, whether they be anti-war, anti-mobilisation, um, the kind of more obscure events, matters of kind of issues of kind of 
resistance against mobilization, whether it be the video that we saw of a Russian man shooting a Russian officer, a commander at a kind of mobilization point at point blank range, a Russian setting themselves on fire, um, kind of protests in the poorer regions like Dagestan, um, where basically people are saying, no, we're not, we're, we're not kind of submitting this. And one point this Western official made is that actually has mobilization created genuine cut through in Russia, that there's actually a war going on. It was actually a huge mistake by Putin. He's played his cards terribly because, as we know, he has control. He has control of the media. Um, so, is this the first time that kind of these the how these messages of how stupid is this war getting? Now it's not just kind of volunteers being dragged over to some of them to so their certain deaths in Ukraine. It's actually regular kind of Russians and and many of them the poorest Russians because he seems to have largely left Moscow alone and gone gone to the looked at kind of the ethnic areas that aren't the Caucasus there might be they might be say the Yadagatstans in the kind of poorer regions in Siberia and elsewhere so that's that's one thing I think we've learned from that and mobilization over the last week or so. Thank you very much for that, Joe. Uh, Natalia, can I turn to you? Just say, what, what would you like to add from that from your perspective? You've been looking at mobilisation, you've been looking at some of the people being forced to join the Russian army. What have, what have you seen? Yeah, sure. Uh, I think first off, it's very important to give some context about why people are so angry right now. Um, I, it's quite reasonable for um, uh, people outside to think, why would anyone be so upset now, seven months after Russia launched the invasion. And the answer is quite simple. Putin has tried for the past seven months to make sure that Russians, uh, amazing as it sounds, can go on living as they have been, that their daily lives wouldn't be disturbed by the war in any way. I mean, yes, the economic sanctions are already starting to bite, but in so many ways, this war has been something like a video game for an overwhelming majority of people in Russia. Uh, now, obviously, um, it has been a wake-up call for everyone and the threat of being involved in the conflict, of being sent into fight, is quite quite high. That's why we've seen, uh, we've seen such emotional protests in, in very far-flung regions and impoverished regions which haven't seen any significant political protest for years. But now it has become a, um, a life and life or death issue. So it's quite likely that we, we, we're going to be seeing more of these and more angry protests. And you've been writing as well of, about some of the rebukes of Kremlin policy from, well, people who are essentially propagandists, um, who, who are loyal. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? What have, what, have, what have they been saying and how has that gone down? Yeah, um, in my mind, this has probably been one of the most surprising um, um, features of the current mobilization drive, because what happened exactly a, year, a week ago, Putin announced the mobilization last Wednesday. Um, uh, this is something that what Russia's propagandists, that the propaganda mouthpieces have been calling for for months. Uh, a lot of them have been total, calling for a total war. Uh, increasingly, they were saying that Russia is at war with NATO, that Russian society should lean in and uh, try and, and, and stop pretending that this war doesn't concern them. So um, that's why it has been really stunning that some of Russia's worst warmongers, people who have been fanning the flame of hatred towards Ukraine for years, they now emerged as some sort of human rights activist who uh, go online, go on state TV and talk at length about how um, Russian conscripts' rights are violated, how uh, people who are too old, too ill or um, not qualified or too qualified to serve are now being called up. Um, and it has been quite extraordinary. And I guess the, the reason why it's happening, I mean, I, I really don't want to comment on the um, genuine motives or um, moral principles of, of those people who have been Putin's loyal servants for years. But I would say one of the motives for them to publicly criticize the mobilization drive and the violation is the fact that it's so unpopular. So they have to make it look like 
um, the um, sweeping mobilization that we're seeing on the ground, while Putin announced that the mobilization would be only partial, would only um, affect people of uh, combat experience, the purpose is to show that the, the reason that they, why those mistakes are happening is not because Putin wanted to. Um, it falls into this very old Russian paradigm that Putin means well. Uh, he wants only good for the Russian people. And all of the problems on the ground are essentially the work of overzealous officials and competent officials and, and something like that. So it's quite extraordinary because now we're like in the seventh, seventh day of the mobilization. And everywhere you go on uh, Twitter and Telegram channels of Russia's worst warmongers, they keep publishing those stories of, I don't know, blind men or famous surgeons who've been called up. And the very people who have been called for a war for years are now saying that, you know, no, those people shouldn't be drafted. I'm sure there are um, other people with war experience, with war, war experience to do that. So that, that has been quite extraordinary. But also I think it's important to say that they're not calling for a truce. They're not calling for peace. They're not walking back on their criticism and vilifications of Ukraine as a Nazi state, as they put it, all they're saying is that they obviously see how unpopular the mobilization drive is and they're trying to sort of um, smooth things over and uh, cut some corners so that people, would, people wouldn't be as um, enraged as they appear to be now. You've written a story published uh, yesterday um, and it's, I mean, it's absolutely awful to read, um, but could you tell us what happened to Archom Kamardin? I mean, this is a story which is sort of linked to the mobilization drive, uh, but it also it also shows how little room there is in, there is for protest in, in Russia. Um, there was a group of activists who held a poetry reading uh, over the weekend uh, on a central Moscow square by the monument um, of uh, famous Russian poet Vladimir Mayakovsky. And uh, in the poetry, in the poems that they read and that was broadcast on YouTube, they uh, mocked. Um, Russia's separatist um, uh, separatist uh, uh, puppet governments in eastern Ukraine and uh, two days later um, uh, the house of one of the activists was raided uh, they were beaten up and one of the activists was uh, raped by the police and all of that has been recorded by doctors and he's now in custody and he's been slapped with charges uh, of um, inciting hatreds, hatred toward um, Ukrainian separatists. Um, again, it just gives you, it just goes to show um, how um, uh, impossible it is to protest in Russia, even if you're just the very act of questioning um, the, any reasoning behind the annexation. Uh, the consequences can be very dire. Thanks, Natalia. Um, one question from me before, and I'm sure Dom and Joe might have questions as well. Um, for people outside Russia looking at these these scenes of protests against mobilization um, of serious unrest, especially in Dagestan and Baratia. There's been some thought. There's been some thought that this could potentially spell the end of the federation. That this might be evidence that the Russian Federation could, could be cracking up. Do you think that's it's far too soon to say that, or do you, do you see some evidence of that yourself? What's your take on on the people who might make that argument? I do think it's too early to say because things like that don't happen overnight. They don't happen over the course of days or weeks um when the mobilization when putin announced the mobilization um it was such a shell shocked for a lot of people um which can explain why um thousands and thousands of people from far-flung places like buryatia uh did go to their um military enlistment offices and are now essentially on the way to ukraine um the, this this shock i think it's going to take a while before um, people are able to deal with the shock. Some people are dealing with it by, by, by protesting. Um, those protests are extraordinary, but they're not massive at this point. Obviously, the fear of social of some security services um, is still very high. So I wouldn't. I think it's too early to, to speak about that. To speak about r- Russian regions trying to split off from um, uh, from from the, from the rest of the country, what we have seen so far, we have seen that in um, there are signs that mobilization targets that that the defense ministry could uh, decide that they don't want to. Ent-
they can say, okay, we've filled in the quota for now and we're going to stop calling up people. That's, um, that's something that we already saw in one Russian region in Belgrade on the border with Ukraine. And I think it's quite possible we're going to be seeing it in other places like in Dagestan, um, which saw some of the most violent and um, um, emotional protests against the mobilization. Thanks so much, Natalia. Dom, I think you've got a question. Yes. Hi, Natalia. Great to hear from you again. I have a question about protests and and if we can pass the issue of, of who these people are and what is important to the Kremlin. So to my basic understanding, we can think about protesters in terms of their number, their location, their, their social position, how, how valued they are to the Kremlin, their ethnic heritage and so on and so forth. What is important to Putin here? Who would he take account of? Is, is it just as simple as once there are X number of thousand protesters, he gets really worried? Or are there certain certain other groups of people who have more um, more capital, if you like, more protest capital, if there is such, such a thing? What, what's he going to take? What's he going to take notice of? That's a great question, Dom. I would actually say that the people who were who've been protesting this week, they are definitely not the people we saw on um, on squares and streets in Russia in the past two decades who were um, rallying for free elections, liberal values, something like that. Um, I recently spoke to a man who was um, who was waiting to flee for Turkey, and he already left. Um, and when I asked him about a potential for protests in in Russia, and we spoke just before he left, he, he told me something that really resonated with me and what I've heard a lot. He said, those who have been protesting in Russia for years, they either or um, uh, which is, again, what we've been seeing in terms of uh, political activists, political leaders. Um, also, Russia's middle class, Russia's upper middle class, who have been the core of anti-Putin opposition for years. They have, as they say, voted with their own feet in the past six months that people have been moving. People decided that it's just not worth their time to protest, to protest like they did um, come to anything. So the people that we saw on the streets in Yakutia or in Dagestan over the weekend and earlier this week, um, this is the Putin electorate. That's why those protests protests are so stunning and potentially dangerous for the Kremlin. Because if it wasn't for the mobilization, those people wouldn't be in the streets. They were not in the streets when uh, Putin decided to um, change the constitution two years ago and let himself to stay in power for essentially as long as he likes. They were not in the street when the war broke out, when, when Russia invaded Ukraine. So that that makes it potentially dangerous. That's why uh, I think it's fair to say that the mobilization is a real gamble for people because for Putin, because um, it alienates his his core supporters, who maybe they were not fervent Putin supporters who would like rally for him in the streets every day, but their tacit support has allowed him to stay in power and allowed him to feel that. If he's not loved, but like people tolerate him, so that's why those protests are, are so um, uh, are so stunning. That, that that's what I would say. Thanks, Natalia. Joe, I think you've got a question. Yeah, um, thanks, Natalia. Um, so you kind of broached on it about kind of the middle class of Russia mm-hmm. voting with their feet. Mm-hmm. So I was just kind of wondering, since the war, so I know you've left and. Mm. hundreds of thousands of other Russians have left. What kind of Russian is actually left in Russia? Because I think that, that there was a stunning figure that I heard recently. It's only about 30% of Russians had an international passport. So mm-hmm. how does, has this affected like industry? Has it affected kind of different cultural scenes? Are there kind of less kind of poetry classes and kind of movements that you would associate with kind of the, the middle and maybe liberal classes? Um, so what does kind of Russia look like at the moment from what you can gather from the outside and speak to your friends and family, etc.? Because it seems to me a lot of people have gone who would kind of participate in these kind of movements, as you say. Mm-hmm. So now who, how are you going to build like an effective opposition to the war if there is to be one without kind of these people in, in the country? Well, first off, uh, how do you build an effective opposition? I would say there is no way to build it right now. If I say, if you talk about the core um, of the opposition that we've had for the past 10 years, in terms of how different it looks now, from from what I can gather from uh, people I know who left and who have been leaving, um, it has affected 
some industries disproportionately compared to others. You know, if you talk about the art scene, if you talk about music, um, you know, imagine orchestra musicians leaving or uh, art curators, artists, uh, people who would be working in international companies, which have now withdrawn from Russia. So far, the impact hasn't been catastrophic. I think the consequences... We were thinking that those consequences would be more pronounced now, um, you know, when, when, when summer is over and like people sort of um, coming back um, to Russia from vacations or like looking around and seeing that their favorite theater company shut down or their English teacher left. Um, obviously, what we're seeing now, um, uh, it's going to have a more immediate impact because, you know, I've heard of stories when entire companies like tech startup and things like that they would evacuate they would like charter a plane to evacuate their staff because they cannot afford to lose the entire company or like even some of the employees to a uh, to a war um so i would say that i mean yes th- those changes were um tangible but um obviously the face of russia is changing very rapidly right now and if all of those people who headed to the border if they're going to stay away for at least a while, then, yeah, those changes would be really pronounced. And definitely, you know, the country and, and Moscow especially will look very, 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 very different. And I, I realise um, we are starting to come to the end of our time today. Thank you very much, Natalia, for answering all, our, all of our questions. Dom, do you just have one more brief question for Natalia, if that's all right? Yeah, if I may, just just quickie. Um, Natalia, looking over the last 20-odd years of Putin either in power or pulling Medvedev's strings when he briefly became whatever it was, Prime Minister, I mean, what protest has got closest to him and and what happened to that or to, the, to those people? How did they self-organise? How were they how are they destroyed afterwards? What would, what would your view be there? Mm-hmm. Well, I think uh, it's a good question and it brings us back to Ukraine because Russia's uh, biggest opposition movement in the past uh, 20 years was the 2011-2012 protests over a rigged parliamentary elections. And that we saw massive rallies throughout Russia, massive rallies in Moscow. At one of the opposition rallies, we had Alexei Kudrin, a longtime Putin ally and uh, finance minister, speaking to the crowd from, from the stage, saying that, um, yes, that election was rigged. We have to do something about. So that protest was very close to, um, uh, if not toppling Putin, but m- m- bringing in a tangible change. Mm-hmm. But it also happened around the time of a, um, of a fairly stable economic growth, um, a time when they were political prisoners, but they were far and few, um, and. Um, when it didn't succeed, when uh, police came in to um, break up a rally in, in May 2012 and ended up jailing 10 people from it, uh, by that time, um, uh, people's attention went elsewhere. Um, Putin returned to power. There were some cosmetic changes to uh, Russian election law that someone, some of the protesters took at face value. And just a year and a half later, Russia next Crimea, uh, which gave a boost to a lot of Russians, including people who were uh, on on the streets back then protesting against the um, the rigged elections. So at that time, Putin was able to distract uh, protesters um, with that. Um, and again, but also it, it happened at the time when the economy was doing incredibly well, and there were no sanctions. There were there was nothing to constrain the Russian economy, and we're obviously in a, in a very different place right now. When um, pretty much every Russian man faces a physical danger, and like they face a danger to their life, so that 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 really um, that really makes it very different from ten years ago. Well, thank you, Joe, Dom, and Natalia for all of your questions, and thank you, Natalia, for for answering for answering all of our questions. Um, we're coming to the end of our time together, Joe. I know you have to jump off a bit sooner, so um, I'd like to ask Dom one more question. But first, Joe, is there anything you'd like to update us on, or can we get your your final thoughts? What are you going to be thinking about um, over the next few days? Um, the, the the thing that I would kind of like to reflect on to finish up is we got the result 
bits there of the um using kind of inverted kind of bunny ear commas uh which for those that can't see me uh of the referendums in the occupied territories they all voted apparently around 98 percent to leave ukraine and join the russian federation um so I think in the next few days, uh, there's been a couple of different suggestions of when Putin might move. The British intelligence update yesterday um, suggested it would be on the 30th, so that's Friday. And then some others have suggested it will be kind of in the build-up to what will be Putin's, I believe, 70th birthday, which is just uh, in a couple of days after the end of the month. So I think that's what we were looking out for, is the moment that Vladimir Putin stands up and basically invites these kind of sham referendums to be turned into reality and let kind of Russia take these territories in. And then that's really important is how the West will respond to that. Will we see further? Well, we've already seen further sanctions from the UK. We're waiting an EU package. Will will the Americans, will they potentially give more weapons? Will the UK, will the European Union give more weapons? We're, we're really looking at how will they respond, uh, the West respond to this, because basically Vladimir Putin wants to kind of give the guys that a attack on these territories will be an attack on Russia, attack on Moscow. So will the West kind of heed to his warnings or will they ignore them and carry on pumping in support for Ukraine as they have done since uh, kind of before the invasion? Thank you. Thank you very much, Joe. Thank you very much for your time today and have a good afternoon. Um, Dom, yes, quickly. So a while ago, when we were first starting to report on the Ukrainian counterattack, um, we saw Russian lines crumble in the east. We saw them being pushed back. Um, the Ukrainians recapture thousands of, of square kilometres. Um, one point you made was that over the next few months, whether the Ukrainians will be able to push on, uh, continue the momentum, keep on pushing the Russians back, will really depend on if they have a, a mobile reserve, if they have enough troops um, uh, if they have enough troops sort of in the back pocket that they can bring up and to continue pushing. Does the continuing uh, fighting around Le Mans, does the, the fact that we might, as you said earlier, we might see Le Mans fall very, very soon or be liberated very, very soon, does that suggest actually that, actually that they do? Ah, yeah, good one. Um, right, so I, I'm pausing because we don't know how badly worn down Ukraine was in its push two weeks ago through... through from Kharkiv. So you have a reserve. At every level, you should have a reserve of commensurate size. So if you're, if you're a company, you should have a, you know, you should have a, a section or maybe even a platoon in, in reserve. If you're a battalion, you should have a company. If you're a brigade, you should have a battalion, blah, blah, blah. So you should always have, have some measure of, of reserve because you need, you need a reserve. You have a reserve and you, you, you throw it in. You employ your reserve at, at the moment of greatest peril or opportunity. So it's just when it's all about to go bendy, you call on your reserve to, to, to steady the ship. Or when, you are, when you're working through and it's going arguably better than you'd expected and you need to keep, keep that momentum going, you, you'd call your reserve up then. And the reason you, you hold it until those moments is because once it's gone, it's gone. And, and if the enemy then shocks you as... As they, you know, they get a vote as well, uh, then you've got nothing else to to rely on. So I'm, I'm loath to say that what we're what we are witnessing now is is Ukraine using its reserve from two weeks ago, partly because of the passage of time, partly because the battlefield there has 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 calcified to a certain degree. I think what we're seeing here is is not quite the artillery tit for tat that we've witnessed in the Donbass over the last few months. This, this is hard hard fighting, hard hard infantry tank. You know, close support, close in fighting, um, and I, I think it's r- relative. The relative strengths are in Ukraine's favour, so I don't think a reserve has been committed here, because it's not, it's not racing away, as in, I, I would be surprised if they would use a reserve now, because what's to stop Russia sort of pushing back somewhere else, and then Ukraine having no answer for it. So I, I think, on a on a sort of you know step back a bit in a in a in a sort of core level, so above division, well well above brigade. So in a sort of talking, troop ten thousand troops ish, um, and that sort of size. I don't think the reserve for that kind of force, which might be a thousand, two thousand people strong. I don't think that's being committed here. I think this is dare I say it, sort of you know quote unquote or to to use Joe's bunny ear commas. Um, I think I've got some of their early albums actually, Bunny Year Commas. But to, to quote unquote, the 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 pushback there is is normal 
normal military stuff. It's normal war. There's, there's not a moment of, of extreme peril for Ukraine. This is extreme peril or, or opportunity. As good as Liman would be, that is not enough to absolutely throw everything you've got and leave yourself vulnerable. Now, Russia, I think, should be probably trying to use their their reserve here because if Liman falls, then they, they they will need to or they will be forced to fall back a long way. So, depends which side you're looking at. Who 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 is at the moment of greatest uh, peril or opportunity? I'd argue Russia is at a moment of you know, real peril here. Um, in terms of opportunity, I don't think it's big enough for Ukraine to deploy whatever reserve they have. Question mark about what they've got left after that huge punch through two weeks ago. So a long-winded way of saying I don't really know. Well, thank you very much, Tom. Um, let's have our final thoughts then. Um, Natalia Vasilieva, thank you so much for your time today. What are you going to be thinking of uh, over the next few days and what would you point our, our listeners to pay more attention to? Sure. Uh, Friday, obviously, is the day to watch for. This is when Vladimir Putin is expected to uh, give his annual address to uh, both chambers of Russian parliament, something which would be pretty routine uh, in normal circumstances. But again, since the speech is um, going to go ahead just two days after the, um, three days after the so-called referendum, referendums ended in uh, parts of southern and eastern Ukraine, this will be the place and time for Putin to tell Russians and Russian lawmakers what he thinks about Ukraine, where things would go forward, whether Russia maybe would want to stop the war, which no one expects, but, you know, who knows. Um, um, And obviously, um, this is the day when we expect him to, um, uh, if not rubber stamp the annexation, but at least to say that, you know, yes, he's going to. Um, uh, he's going to accept um, the. Uh, um, uh, he, he's going. He's going to accept uh, the votes as uh, separatists in those regions call it, and the vote results. And uh, he will be looking to um, annex those parts of Ukraine um, to be part of Russia. Uh, so I would definitely uh, look for that because for. If you look at it from another point of view, you can say that this would be a chance for Putin to at least declare partial some wins in Ukraine and tell Russians that, you know, at least we did something. Look at the beautiful personal region that we're now annexing um, that we didn't have before the war. So Friday is definitely the, the day to look out for. Thank you very much, Natalia. Dom Nichols, would you like the final words? What's on your mind? Thanks, David. I would echo Natalia's points there. Friday is is going to be key. I mean, not because the referendums mean anything at all. They are they're utterly discredited. I mean, the, the numbers are just ridiculous, 98, 99%. But it will be very interesting to see the reaction from the hardcore nationalist right wing, very, very, the pro-Putin, pro-Russia faction who have been angry at the way the Kremlin's run this war. When they comment, if Putin comes out on Friday and says, hey, we've won the referendum, they're all now part of Russia, these, these, the four regions, um, just, just as Crimea was in 2014 with whatever it was, 94% of the vote then didn't stop Ukraine attacking uh, Crimea during this, this current phase of the war and hasn't resulted in all the nuclear holocaust that we've been was warned about so it's not going to make any difference to the battlefield what it might make a difference to though is the like i say this this voice from the right this this right wing if they are seeing battlefield reversals and some areas of these uh, of these oblasts that have voted overwhelmingly 98 99 percent in favor of joining russia if some of those if some of the areas there are being taken over retaken by in their view taken over but retaken by ukraine their response is likely to be um, unappealing for putin should we say unequivocal in their in their voice and it could be very very damaging for putin indeed ukraine the latest is an original podcast from the telegraph to stay on top of all of our ukraine news analysis and dispatches from the ground Subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. And sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing 
podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Claire Hubble. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.